All right, this morning we are in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. And the message is called Groanings, which you, I think you'll understand in a minute why we're going to call it that. Groanings. So let's open up to Romans 8. I thank God that uh, I was working on this message even though I thought Jerome was supposed to preach because <laughs> I had a lot of work done on it. And then he, I found out at 5.30 in the morning and then I was able to finish it up. So praise God. Thank you, Lord, for that. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege, what a treat it is for us to be able to open up your word today and read it, think about it, discuss it, Apply it to our lives. Lord, that is such, such a treat. This is, this is a, a, a table laden with food for us. This is a meal for our soul. I pray, Father, that you'd strengthen us to receive the truth of this passage. I pray, Lord, that it would encourage those who are suffering. And that, Lord, if we're not facing suffering at this moment, we would store up the truth of this word that it would help us in our own time of trial. So come, Holy Spirit, and move amongst your people. Take your word and make it live. Make it alive to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and read the text this morning. It's Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. This passage is about groaning. I'm going to give you an outline of verses 18 through 27, though we didn't read verse 26 and 27. Let's go ahead and do that, just so you see the entire surrounding context. Verse 26 says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You've got the groaning of three different persons or groups in this passage. You have the groaning of the creation in verses 18 to 22. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The groaning of the creation. Then you've got the groaning of the Christian in verse 23 through 25. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And then we have the groaning of the Comforter in verse 26. The Spirit helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The creation is groaning. The Christian is groaning. And the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is groaning. So that's what ties this whole passage together. There's all these groanings going on. Creation, the believer, the Spirit of God. Now, what do we mean when we talk about groaning? I mean, we, that's a word that we commonly use, but 
I wanted to know the, dif- the dictionary definition because I wasn't exactly sure how I would define it. This is the dictionary definition. To groan is to make a deep, inarticulate sound in response to pain or despair. So a deep, inarticulate. You're not expressing words, but you're... You know, you're expressing this groan, and the groan expresses pain or despair. Now, is there anything in this passage that would tell us that pain or despair is taking place? Well, there's actually a lot. Verse 18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering of this present time. Or, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. That's a word that would provoke pain. The creation is subjected to futility, despair. Or, verse 21, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. The creation is subjected to futility, The creation is a slave to corruption. Not only that, verse 22 says, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So suffering, futility, and corruption are what cause pain and despair. And that's why the creation groans, because these things are going on. But this passage is talking more than just about groaning. It's also talking about glory. That's what we find in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that makes sense because verse 17 says, If we are children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So throughout the passage, Paul is talking about suffering and glory. Present suffering and future glory. Remember last, well, it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago, we had a sermon on the believer's inheritance. The inheritance of the Christian. And I pointed out that there are four things, at least, that our inheritance includes. Verse 17 says that we are heirs of God. We inherit God, which is the greatest blessing, the greatest portion of our inheritance. Everything's are subsumed under this one. We get God. He's the treasure. Secondly, we get Christ, and we are fellow heirs with Christ, so whatever Jesus gets as his inheritance, we get too. And Hebrews 1 verse 2 says that Christ inherits all things, everything. Thirdly, the Bible says we inherit the world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's going to be a new earth, new earth, in which righteousness dwells with no sin, suffering, sickness, death, pain. It's all gone. A new earth in which we worship God and Christ. So the believer inherits the world. According to Romans chapter 4, Matthew 6, verse 6. And then finally, we inherit redeemed bodies, glorified bodies. That's what it means to be glorified together with Christ. Our bodies are changed and transformed so that we can enjoy eternity, enjoy worshiping Christ and God on the new earth. Now, verse 18 starts off with these words, for I consider. For I consider. Paul had been thinking about what he was about to write. Paul had sat down and he had thought about this from every angle. He brought all his reasoning powers to bear, and he made a conclusion. His conclusion was that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's like he had a pair of scales, like sometimes you go into a market and you'll put uh, something on one side and something on the other, and you'll find out how much it weighs, you know. It's like there was this pair of scales, and on the left side he put present sufferings. And on the right side, he put future glory. And when he did that, the future glory side of the skills came crashing down because there was no comparison with the weight and value of future glory 
when we try to compare it with present sufferings. You can't even compare the two. It's like comparing the weight of a feather with a jumbo jet. You know, there's no comparison between the two things. Sometimes when our sufferings are really great, it seems like they're just going to go on forever. And it's hard to look at those sufferings through God's eyes. But we need to try to do that. And I want to help you do that this morning. He calls these sufferings of the present time. They're not going to go on forever. They're just of this present time. And this present time will conclude when you die or when Jesus comes back. And compared to eternity, that's nothing. And then eternity begins. Eternal glory and joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, remember who's writing this passage. You might think, well, that's just a lot of hot air, Paul. You're just, you know, you're just blowing smoke. But wait, wait a minute, think about Paul. Paul wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He didn't live in some ivory tower. Paul, according to his own writings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he said that he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was hungry, he was in constant danger everywhere he went. And that person who had experienced all those sufferings says, hey, don't you can't even compare what's coming with what we're experiencing now. Now, as we work our way through the passage, I want you to see three things about the groaning of creation and then three things about the groaning of the Christian. First of all, the groaning of the creation. The creation was subjected to corruption. The creation is a slave to corruption. And the creation will be set free from corruption. Those are three things Paul tells us from this text. And then three things about the groaning of the Christian. The Christian groans because he has tasted the first fruits of the Spirit, because of the infirmity of his flesh, and because he hopes for glory. Now let's work our way through this section. The groaning of the creation. The creation was subjected to corruption. Look at verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, let's stop and just think about that word creation. Because verses 18 through 22 are talking about the creation. What does Paul have in mind when he's talking about the creation? Well, we know he's not talking about Christians. Because when verse 23, he says, And not only this, the creation, but also we ourselves. So the creation, whatever he has in mind, is not talking about Christians. It's talking about something else. Most Bible scholars, when they have treated these verses, believe that Paul is talking about the inanimate creation, the non-rational creation, like the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom. But it would also include things like the waves and the winds, the storms, the patterns, the, the, uh, the heavenly patterns that surround the world. So it's his creation, primarily in the plants and animal kingdom. Um, everything God has made in the world apart from man. Now, notice that word futility in verse 20. He says the creation was subjected to futility. What is that word talking about? The word means purposelessness or emptiness or meaninglessness. In the song, or no, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, it's translated vanity. Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is empty, all is futile, all is meaningless. If you were to boil down the meaning of the word futility, it means that which fails to measure up to the purpose for which it was created. That's really good when we apply it to the creation. The creation fails to measure up to the purpose for which it was created. You see, something terribly wrong has taken place in this world. Something really... Our world is broken. 
Something went wrong with this world. It's not measuring up today for the purpose for which God originally created it. And we know that because in verse 20 it says, the creation was subjected to futility. That's passive. means the creation didn't do this to itself. It happened to the creation. It was subjected to futility. Well, how did that happen? Who did that? It says, not willingly. So the creation didn't make a choice to subject itself to futility. It wasn't its will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So there was a person who subjected it. Him. Who's the him? God. Yeah. God did it. It's not Satan, and it's not Adam, because neither of those persons subjected the creation to futility in hope. God subjected this present world to futility, but there was a hope attached to the futility. Something is coming in the future that's going to set it free from the futility that it's now in. Now, in order to understand this, we have to understand that originally God created the world very good, right? He, he created everything and then he pronounced it all very good. But today, the creation groans. So what turned this good creation into a groaning creation? Well, go back to the book of Genesis with me. And let's take a look at what happened very early on. This is Genesis chapter 3. In the first seven verses, Adam and Eve sinned by partaking of the forbidden fruit. They sow fig leaves together and hide from God. God searches them out, brings them into the opening, and he starts having a discussion with Adam and Eve. And notice what he says to them in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Something cataclysmic has taken place because of Adam and Eve's fall. Until then, until they fell, there was no death in the world. Now he says, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Not only that, apparently up until this time, they had pleasantly just gone outside and just picked from the trees of the garden all the food they wanted for that day, and it was not difficult or laborious to try to come up with the food they needed from day to day. He says, now in toil, you're going to sweat just in order to survive from day to day. And in third world countries today, they're still living this way. By, by the sweat of their brow, they're toiling just to get enough food to survive another day. And that's how it's been for much of the world's population over the centuries, since the beginning of time. We, we kind of live in a, a very, very blessed situation that, that's not usually the situation of Americans today. So we tend to look around at our world with the suffering in it and the decay and the death that happens to every plant, every animal, every tree, every shrub. And we think, well, that's just the way things are. That's just the way it is. But that's not the way the world originally was. Something has happened to this world to change what God originally intended, a perfect paradise creation into what we observe today. And it was the fall of man and woman into sin. So the creation was subjected to corruption. If you look back in the past, at a point in time, God put a curse upon this world. And that curse has brought all of the stuff that we see in the world today. Hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, tsunamis. The, the disease and suffering and death of animals and plants and how everything is disintegrating. All of that came because of the curse. Not only that, but secondly, the creation was subjected. I'm sorry, the creation is a slave to corruption. We see that in verse 21. That the creation itself also, 
will be set free from its slavery to corruption. That's what it is undergoing right now. It's in bondage to corruption. And the creation can't change that condition. It has been imposed upon it by God's curse. In spite of the fall, though, we still see all kinds of things in creation that point to the glory of God, don't we? In spite of this fall, in spite of the curse. For example, peering over the rim of the Grand Canyon for the first time and just saying, whoa. You still see echoes of the glory of God in this creation. Or swimming in the oceans of Hawaii with sea turtles and looking into those crystal clear waters and watching fish swim all over the place. And it's like bath water. I mean, there's an echo of the glory of God. Or a beautiful sunset. Or watching sea turtles or butterflies migrate thousands of miles from their place of birth migrating back to the very spot where they were born, having never been there before, but something inside of them knows they've got to go back. How do you explain that? I mean, I I marvel at the animal kingdom. I love to watch these YouTube videos. And God's creation, I mean, if we have eyes to see it, you see his glory all over this world in spite of being in a cursed world. It's just, it's everywhere. But... There's still something dreadfully wrong. This world is not functioning according to God's original design. Think about the the tsunami in 2004 that killed approximately 230,000 people. No part of creation exists as God originally intended for it to exist. There is this universal process of death and decay that's going on everywhere around us. And scientists even have a name for this. They call it entropy. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It means everything is winding down. Everything is going from order to chaos. Everything is disintegrating. They, you can observe it everywhere in the created world. The beginning of the world was marked by perfection. And we know that at the end of the world, it also will be marked by perfection. Because Revelation 22.3 says, there will no longer be any curse. So at the beginning, there was no curse. At the end of human history, there will be no curse. We're living in the span of time in between those two, where we're experiencing God's curse on the world. So right now, the creation is a slave to corruption. Thirdly, the creation will be set free from corruption. In the past, it was subjected to futility. In the present, it's a slave to corruption. In the future, it's going to be set free from this corruption. Now, when's this going to happen? Look at verse 19. Paul says, The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for something. What's the creation waiting for? The revealing of the sons of God. Now, why would the creation be waiting for the sons of God to be revealed? I think we're yes, because it's the, the destiny of the creation is bound up with the destiny of the sons of God. When the sons of God are revealed, when Christ returns, there's going to be... We had one cataclysmic change in Genesis chapter 3. There's going to be another one that will overturn all of that and restore it back to what it originally was intended to be. And creation is dependent upon the sons of God being revealed. Let me see if I can explain this. See, Paul's personifying creation and he's picturing it as anxiously waiting, like on tiptoe, excitedly waiting for something to happen. He's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. See, right now, the sons of God are not revealed. We pretty much look like everybody else in the world. We don't stand it. There was no halo over our heads. We don't have a superhuman glow wherever we walk, right? We look like everybody else. But there's coming a day when we're going to be revealed as the sons of God. Do you remember Matthew 25? It says, when the king comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he's going to sit on his glorious throne and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. On on that day, when Christ returns, 
we will be revealed as heaven's favorites, as his beloved chosen children. We will be on this side, separated away from the godless who will hear those terrifying words, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We will hear words, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we will be revealed. Right now, the world sees us as foolish, weak, base, and despised. But on that day, they're going to see... Wow, the ones that we thought were just weak and the off-scouring of the world, the scum of the earth, the one, the nobodies, they're the favorites of heaven. They are the ones loved by God, saved by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And they're going to be amazed as they look upon this group of people. So, when the sons of God are revealed, something else is going to happen to the creation. Verse 21 says, The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We are going to be glorified together with Christ. Our bodies will be transformed. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 13, 43, Then the righteous shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Our bodies will be transformed like Christ's body when his body was raised from the dead. Ours is going to go through a change and we will shine forth like the sun (laughs) in the glory of our father. And when that happens, creation also is going to be transformed and changed back into paradise, back into a a perfected state where there is no disease There is no corruption. There is no death. Everything flourishes to the glory of God. And that's what Paul is telling us here. It will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation right now groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now think about childbirth, especially you ladies who understand it. You've given birth. It's attended with a lot of suffering. I mean, I know that because I was there when my wife gave birth to two boys. (laughs) She suffered. But not only is there suffering in childbirth, but there's also hope going on. You've got these two twin things, don't you? Suffering and hope. Because you know... You're expecting this, this child, this, this loved one, this baby to enter into the world through your suffering. And the creation is groaning and suffering right now, but it's doing so in hope because it knows a day is coming when something beautiful is going to come forth from all this suffering. And the beautiful thing is God restoring the world to his original intention, the new earth. He's going to burn up the old one, create a new one in which righteousness dwells. So the curse is going to be lifted, and this creation is going to perfectly reflect back to God His glory. Won't that be amazing? I mean, of course we can't really imagine it, but try try to imagine what it'll be like. I think God wants us to spend time meditating on the future glory to come. So... The creation groans. But that's not all. The Christian also groans. The Christian groans because he's tasted the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 23. And not only this, not only creation groans, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So not only does creation groan to be set free from the slavery of corruption, but man groans because he wants to be set free from the corruption, slavery to corruption. And what is taking place in creation is mirrored in what is taking place in the Christian. We're going through similar things. Creation has been subjected to the curse, And so there's death and corruption and decay going on in all God's creation, plants and animals, but it's also going on in people. 
And we groan because we want to be set free also from this corruption. He tells us in verse 23, verse 23, it's because we have the first fruits of the Spirit that we groan. Now let's meditate on that phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits in the Old Testament was the very first portion that was picked of the full harvest that was yet to come in the future. So they would glean some of the pomegranates or figs or whatever the harvest was. Some would ripen early and they would go out and pick that. And they would offer that in sacrifice to the Lord as the first fruits. The first fruits tells two things. It tells us about the guarantee that a greater harvest is yet to come. And it also gives a foretaste of that which is to come. It's two things. It's a guarantee and it's a foretaste. First of all, a guarantee. In Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is a pledge of our redemption. That word pledge means deposit or down payment or guarantee. It's arabon. It can be used of an engagement ring. All of those things tell us that it's guaranteeing that something even bigger and greater is yet to come. So the, when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, that's God's guarantee that there's more to come. That's just the first installment. He's got a lot more coming, but you're starting to experience the beginnings of the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. And not only is it a guarantee, but it's also a foretaste. The Holy Spirit in our life gives us a taste of the life to come. A taste of everlasting glory. A, a taste of everlasting enjoyment of God. For example, when you were born again and God changed your heart and you began to love the things you once hated and hate the things you once loved and you begin to love God, really love God for the first time and you really wanted to please Him and you wanted to obey His word now, uh, that that's just the foretaste of all of those things put to, into their perfected state. We we get to taste right now experientially what the life to come is going to be about, not in perfection, but at least in a small measure. We we taste the world to come through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who works in us and changes our desires and our affections and our values and our heart. He changes all of that, not perfect perfectly, but at least enough so that we know what it's going to be like in the world to come. It's going to be loving God perfectly, pleasing God perfectly, obeying Him perfectly. Can you imagine? That's what the life to come is going to be about. So it's a foretaste. So the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration and in sanctification give us a taste of the next life. So we groan because we've tasted these first fruits, the working of the Spirit. Secondly, the Christian groans because of the infirmity of his flesh. And we know that because he says here, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. If we're waiting eagerly for the redemption of our body, doesn't that tell you that our body has not yet been redeemed? We're waiting for it to be redeemed. That means that we are redeemed persons Redeemed souls living in an unredeemed body. And that's what creates the groaning. You are a person that has been made new, a new creation in Christ Jesus, but you dwell in a body that is still old, <laughs> that still has the effects of sin in it, pro proneness to weakness, proneness to temptation. And so we groan. And notice he says we groan within ourselves. I, he, this isn't an outward groaning, it's an inward groaning. I don't even think it's an audible groaning. It's something that our spirit does inside of us when we feel the effects of the fall and we long to be free from those effects of the fall. We long to be in paradise, in the new earth with Christ forever, but yet we're in this old body, in this old life with a, a redeemed body that loves the Lord. So we groan within ourselves. And then he says, waiting eagerly. For our adoption as sons. And doesn't that sound odd to you? Because just a few verses earlier in verse 15, he says that the spirit of adoption has entered our lives by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
Well, if we already have the spirit of adoption, why are we waiting for our adoption as sons? And the answer must be because we have been adopted, but yet there, that adoption will not be experienced in its fullness until Christ returns. It's begun, but not perfected. It's already, but not yet. There's, there's these two sides to our adoption. Yes, we are part of God's family. We've been adopted into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. But there's a whole greater dimension of our adoption as sons that we're going to experience, but only when Christ returns and our bodies are redeemed. We're waiting for the redemption of our body. I think that's why Paul says over in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2, For indeed in this house, when he talks about house, he's talking about his body. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We instinctively know that this body is is not, it's not fitted to our soul. There's a, it's a mismatch. Not only because this body gets sick and diseased and is in the process of dying, the seeds of death are in it. That doesn't seem to match this new everlasting life that we possess in Christ. But also because this body moves us and causes us to sin and it grieves us. So what do we mean? What do I mean when I talk about the infirmity of our flesh? I mean two things. I mean the suffering that takes place because of being in this flesh and the sin that takes place because we are in this flesh. Suffering and sin. That's the infirmity that we experience living in these bodies. Folks, suffering's everywhere. The world we live in is beautiful, right? I mean, it's beautiful, but it's cruel all at the same time. You have both aspects going on. The beauty of God's creation, even though it's been cursed through the fall, we see it everywhere. But at the same time, we see the cruelty of living in this sin-cursed world. I'll just give you a personal example in my own life. On August 8, 2004, we woke up to the news a... Um, what do they call that guy, Debbie, that knocked on our door? A chaplain knocked on our door and he said, I want you to sit down. I have some news to tell you. And mom, you were there, right? Yeah, you were there. My son, Jonathan was there. Debbie was there. We sat on the couch and he said, your son, uh, Josiah died last night. He was killed. And you know, you don't believe it. And so we initially didn't believe the news, but once it actually did sink in, this had actually happened. I think I felt the deepest darkness and depression I had ever experienced in my life. And I was like in a fog going through that next week until we came to the uh, memorial service. Grief, profound grief, regret, all of those emotions just weighed really, really heavily upon, upon me. And I, I think of, you know, I'm not alone in this. Millions of people around the world die every day. In fact, I, I got the statistics. 55 million people die each year th- around the world. That's 6,316 people die every hour. If you breathe in and breathe out, four people have died. So the world's just... People all over the world are dying all the time. And don't you know that those people that are dying are loved ones. Like my son was a loved one of mine and profound grief and pain and suffering is associated with every one of those people around the world that is constantly dying. So just imagine the cumulative effect of the grief and sorrow. If you could take all those people who are suffering just because of loved ones dying and put them in in one place, the cumulative grief would be overwhelming. What are some examples of the infirmity of our flesh? Babies born with deformities and disabilities in this sin-cursed world. We have two precious children in our own fellowship who have to 
travel in wheelchairs. And unless a miracle happens, will will not be able to walk the rest of their life. They'll be confined to wheelchairs. That hits close to home with us. 600,000 people die in America from cancer every year. I can't tell you how many people that were acquaintances of mine that I've known about them who've died of cancer. It just seems like it's an, of epidemic proportions. It, I, I'm not even surprised anymore when I hear someone's got cancer. Debbie's got a very good friend who has migraines and has had these for over 20 years. And she gets them practically every week, sometimes multiple times a week. And she's prayed and prayed and prayed for healing. And it, up until this time, the Lord has chosen not to heal her. The sufferings of this present time, the infirmity of the flesh. Add to that things like fatigue, back pain, epilepsy, diabetes, Down syndrome. Parkinson's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, AIDS, multiple sclerosis, arthritis, and that's just the beginning of the list. It goes on and on and on. Our bodies are corrupting. They're breaking down. In fact, if I, if I get to know somebody long enough, I, I will inevitably find that they are suffering in one way or another. Something in their body's not right. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who had no problems physically. There's, there's always something. And that's because of the fall, of sin. Sin has brought this into the world. But not only is it suffering from physical issues, our infirmity of our flesh is our suffering because of sin. We groan because we long to live holy lives. A true Christian, if he could, would never sin again. That's his wish. That's his desire. That's the longing of his heart as he never wants to sin again because he loves the Lord Jesus. He wants to please the Lord in his thoughts, his words, his actions. But he finds sin expressing itself through his body. Have you ever been grieved because of sin in your life? Have you ever inwardly groaned in your spirit because of attitudes or words or actions that are coming forth from you that you don't want to be there? You know are not right. You know are not pleasing to God, but are happening anyway. I think that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 23. There's this groaning. I'm a new creation in an unredeemed body and I'm groaning because I experienced the first fruits of the Holy Spirit and I want that all the time, but I'm not experiencing it all the time. But there's coming a day when our body is going to be redeemed, joined to this redeemed soul, and we will be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of God's children. That's coming. Thirdly, the Christian groans because he hopes for glory. Look at verse 24. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. He says, for in hope we have been saved. What hope is Paul talking about? I think it's the hope that he's already mentioned in Romans. Chapter 5, verse 2 where he says, we exult in hope of the glory of God. The Christian has this hope that he will experience the fullness of the glory of God. In hope we have been saved. He's not saying that we're saved by hope. He's saying that when we were saved, we were saved into this state of hope that we're looking forward to fully experiencing God and His glory. And we long to experience the sweetness of God's attributes and to know Him more fully than we already do and to enjoy Him more fully than we already enjoy Him. Now, we use the word hope differently than Bible writers do. I might say, you know, I, I hope I win the lottery. But that's not what Bible writers mean when they say that they had a hope. When I use the word hope, I might mean a wish. It's like a million to one wish that it might happen. But when the Bible speaks about hope, it's talking about a certain 
uh, confident expectation that we look forward to through faith. We look forward in faith, believing the word of God is actually going to come to pass. I'll give you just one example of the this hope that the Bible talks about. In he, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He says this hope that we have that we're going to enter within the veil, that is to be in the immediate presence of God for eternity, that hope of heaven, of dwelling with God, that hope is sure and steadfast. And we know it is because Christ, our forerunner, has already gone there, And if our forerunner has gone to be in the presence of God, all those people represented by him are going to end up there as well. So it's a sure hope. It's a steadfast hope. Now, that's what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says, in this sure and steadfast hope, we have been saved. We look forward to what God has promised in the future. The promise of coming good. And then he says, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. If we have this biblical hope, which is the redemption of our body, is going to put steel in our backbone and enable us to wait with perseverance through these present sufferings. That's what he's really talking about. He's saying, present sufferings are not even worthy to be on the same scale as future glory. And we might say, well, is it really worth it? This Christian life, there's so much suffering, there's so much heartache, it's so hard. Yes, it's worth it. That's what Paul's point. Glory is coming. It's worth it. Look forward to what God has promised you in Christ. Now let me just wrap our message up this morning with some conclusions. Number one, this this teaches us that in this life we're going to suffer tribulation. Do not listen to teachers that tell you that if you just have enough faith, you will not suffer in this life. It's not biblical. It's not true. It's not according to the word of God. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. You you will. You will. You're not going to escape it. But be of good cheer. He said, I have overcome the world. We live in a sin-cursed world, which is broken. Suffering comes along with that curse. We have to accept the fact that this is our lot in life. We will go through suffering. Number two, this passage teaches us that glory will be revealed to us. The sons of God are going to be revealed. They're going to enter into the freedom of glory. Their bodies are going to be redeemed. They're going to experience the fullness of being God's adopted sons. It's coming. And so I want to encourage you, believe that. Believe that. Hope for that. Then thirdly, wait eagerly for the coming glory. Wait eagerly for the coming glory. Did you notice as we've been working through this passage, how many times Paul talks about waiting eagerly for something? Like um, verse 19, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And then verse 23 Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. God doesn't want us just to wait for coming glory. He wants us to wait eagerly, (laughs) eagerly, excitedly, expectantly. He wants your mind to be thinking about the second coming of his son. He wants you to be looking forward to what's going to happen when Jesus returns. An eagerness should permeate our thoughts when we think about heaven. 
Like, yes, the Lord has me here for a time, but I'm looking forward eagerly to what the Lord has for me in this, in eternity. So I want to speak to those of you who are suffering, and I know some of you are. You're suffering this morning. I, I want to encourage you, don't lose hope. Lift up your heads. Look at the Word of God. Remember God's big plan, His big picture. We can get so fixated on our sufferings that we lose track of the big picture and we only focus on this myopic thing, this, this pain that you're experiencing. Well, lift up your heads by faith and see what God is doing. He, there's coming a new day, a new world, a new paradise that God is going to bring and you're going to be part of it. Allow suffering to cause you to wait eagerly and to increase your appetite for God and for His glory. I want to just conclude with this scripture from Revelation 22.12. Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Father, would you use your scriptures today to encourage your suffering children? Use them, Lord, to encourage us. Help us to get out of our own pain and to look at what you're doing. Your purposes in the world. Lord, help us to get out of ourselves and to serve somebody else and to, to do something that would minister to another, another person. To forget our pain for a moment. Fill us with excitement and expectation that we might wait eagerly for Jesus and enjoy the new earth that you're going to bring into existence. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.